and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. So I am joined today with Mark Lesser, and he is a CEO, Zen teacher, author, and leads trainings and talks worldwide. He has led mindfulness and emotional intelligence programs at many of the world's leading businesses and organizations, including Google, SAP, Genentech, and Kaiser. He is currently CEO of ZBA Associates, a company providing mindfulness-based leadership trainings and creative community by supporting ongoing groups. Previously, he served as CEO and co-founder of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, whose core programs he helped develop within Google. Mark was a resident of the San Francisco Zen Center for 10 years and former director of Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. He currently leads Mill Valley Zen, a weekly meditation group, and he also has an MBA degree from New York University and is the author of Less, Accomplishing More by Doing Less and Know Yourself, Forget Yourself, and his newest book that we are going to talk about today is Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. So, Mark, welcome. Thanks, April. Yeah, I really found your book quite interesting. Um, it was definitely a tool for me because, as you know, I clearly am a host of this podcast. I have my own business outside of this and really always trying to just fine tune my connection with other human beings and really trying to be that leader, um, you know, that you talk about and staying very mindful in the work that we're doing. So I have lots of questions and I really enjoyed this book, but maybe you can take our listeners who might be new to your work, uh, just give them a little brief overview of your background and how you came to working uh, with all of this mindfulness and how it has helped you kind of along the way in your own life. Yeah, my my background, a bit bit unconventional in that I uh, did, you know, as as you mentioned, I spent 10 years living at the San Francisco Zen Center. That was... um, I was in my 20s. I took a, a, a one-year leave of absence from Rutgers University in New Jersey and came to San Francisco just to e- explore what, what was the world was beyond New Jersey. And, and um, I was really taken by uh, meditation practice and community and studying and practicing kind of these self, self-awareness practices, growth practices, or practices around being a more full and and free human being just really, really grabbed me. And, um, and one of the things that really surprised me during my time at the Zen Center was uh, how important work was. And this, um, the kind of interesting integration of these kind of uh, self-actualization, self-awareness practices with work. And um, I, I found that I, in, in particular, uh, I spent several years uh, working in a kitchen and running a kitchen in a, in this place that you mentioned called Tassahara, which is a it's a Zen monastery in the winter time. Um, it's kind of closed and there's several long retreats, but then in the summer it's a resort and conference center and there's 
maybe 75 or 80 overnight guests. Uh, so the the kitchen becomes a much more kind of prominent uh, place and high-pressure place in that they're kind of producing these uh, gourmet-quality vegetarian meals for the for the guests every day. And and I found that I just loved that that I loved work, and there was something so satisfying and fulfilling about you know, working in a high-pressured kitchen with you know 15 people and producing uh, producing great. Um, meals and but it, and that it was all somehow part of our kind of meditation and mindfulness practice and 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 I wondered you know why isn't everybody doing this I, I remember hearing all the statistics about how unengaged you know that two thirds of people in the United States don't feel engaged in their work and I was like well here, here's a problem that maybe I can I can uh, help shift and I decided that that was the work that I wanted to do. And I, I ended up going right from uh, to Zen Center to NYU Business School and started a, and ran a, a publishing company for, um, for many years and, and then found myself uh, at Google about, oh, this goes back maybe um, 12, 13 years ago. Uh, Google was wanting to create a a mindfulness program uh, for their employees, and I got the call to come and be part of a team to help develop and teach that program, and um, and then I ended up starting a company to to spread uh, mindfulness and emotional intelligence to companies around around the world, which is kind of what uh, one of the things I, I'm doing these days. Yeah. And, you know, when I read that too, of course, I'm thinking, well, you know, the success of Google and, you know, hearing that they were wanting this for their employees and you're doing this more and more all over the world. Um, I would assume that you would probably say that those companies that are bringing in an element of mindfulness to their employees and teaching this, they probably overall produce better results, are more successful companies and are doing a lot better than those companies that do not have this. You know, there's because um, because of the uh, size of the the companies, like you know, like Google and SAP, it's um, it, it's hard to say how it influences the company overall. I, I used to joke people would people would ask me, how's it? You know, what how's it? Is there any measurement of success um, within Google? And I would uh, say, oh, we'll just look at the stock price. But that's completely a joke. <laughs> um, but having said that, uh, those companies have done quite a bit of data collection and measurement about how it impacts the lives of individuals and teams. And, and even um, SAP in particular, I think you can even go on their website and see how these programs have influenced, you know, move, move the needle in, tame, in terms of, you know, saving money because of the well-being programs and um, other other return on investment measures from these programs. Yeah, and you know, in the introduction, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the small mind and the big mind because you weave that in throughout, and I just you know really enjoyed reading that part of it, and I thought it would be a good place to start as we begin to move into talking about the practices that you mention of being a mindful leader in your group. That it might be good for our listeners to also understand what is the small mind versus the big mind, so they begin to think about the ways in which they're thinking about 
what they do in their lives and work and how they can begin to learn and differentiate between both minds. Yeah. Um, you know, these are, I, I think of these concepts as coming, coming from the, the Zen tradition where they actually talk quite a bit about a small mind and big mind. You know, the small mind is used as a, as a, a way to talk about the, the mind that is, uh, very self-referential and and usually caught by one's story about about self um it's um usually involves um you know fear fear and greed it's because in a way when it comes to you know the world of me it's all about what do i want and what don't i want or what am i afraid of and what what am i grasping towards so this is in a sense this is um, kind of what, what's meant by small mind and big mind is um, not being so caught by by our own uh, our own stories about self not being so caught by uh, greed and and hatred and and fear and at least so in some way it's um, you know because we're in this uh, human mind and body it's it, it's a little bit like you like you were saying when you talked about yourself at the beginning of this uh, conversation, your own aspiration, your aspiration to be a more mindful, caring, connected leader. This is this is like the aspiration around um, around big mind. Yeah. And um, I have like so many different notes in your book. I have all these tabs. I'm like trying to go through quickly as we're as we're talking here. But um, one of the things that really hit me in the book is where you talked about once once you kind of have yourself out there in the forefront forefront, and people start to look up to you or look to you as a leader, there is a bit of a pressure um, that comes comes over you, or I was able to relate to that in the book that has come over me to almost feel like, gosh, I really have to stay prepared, you know, at all times. If I'm going to continue to keep leading, I need to be on that leading edge. I need to be, um, you know, producing in some way, but, you know, giving stuff to the people who are coming to me and looking at me, you know, as a teacher, but there is a, an element of responsibility that you talked about there that can sometimes feel a little overwhelming at times for me. Yeah, I think of a uh, one of my mentors uh, once told me he, he called it the rule, the rule of influence about leadership. That when you're when you're in a leadership role, that 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 everything that you do and everything that you don't do, and everything that you say and everything that you don't say will influence others. Right. And, and that again, this is this is particularly when you're in a in a role of leadership that people are are, are really paying attention. You you are under a microscope in, in in a way, but just to as a footnote, you know, for me when I use this um, the the word leadership, yes, I am in part referring to the role of a leader, but um, and and I think I say this in a book in the book that. Uh, everyone is a leader in the sense that we all we all have influence, whether we're in a leadership role or not, whether we're on a team, maybe we're a you know we're a, have a one person business or we're a teacher or a doctor. We 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 have many many of the same uh, you know is, issues and opportunities that uh, of leadership. Yes. So I'd like to move into um, the practices and I just want to um, read them for our listeners in case they don't have your book already in front of them. But um, the practices are love the work, do the work, don't be an expert, connect to your pain, 
connect to the pain of others, depend on others, keep making it simpler. And I remember hearing the quote when I was in my 20s, um, if you love the work you do, you ne- you'll never work a day in your life. And that um, really resonated with me. And at the time, I was in a job that I did not love. I was still helping people. But it was when I heard that, then I began to think about how can I really start loving coming to work? What does that look like? And for me, that looked like opening up my own business. And since then, I, you know, I haven't turned back, but I'm always looking for that inspiration. And when I was going through your practices, I'm like, okay, yes, I can check off. I do love the work um, too. I am doing the work. And and that's where you also talk about having your regular meditation and mindfulness practices. Um, Don't be an expert. My ego can probably work on that some more. Right. (laughs) Um, And um, but I also felt like connecting to my pain um, and connecting to the pain of others has been fairly easy for me because I also do mental health counseling. So part of my own pain was an inspiration moving into the work that I do. And I am constantly connecting with the pain of others and, you know, using the skill of empathy and compassion. And then I would say I am on maybe the last two practices that that's what needs most fine tuning for me to begin to depend on others, um, you know, working in community, uh, eliciting the help of others. And it's very funny. Um, the last practice that you have keep making it simpler. When I created my vision board this year, that was my theme for the whole year. It was a very simple vision board and I just have on it, keep it simple. So when I got to that part, I was like, yes, thank God. All right. I'm on the right track here. Now I'm like reading your book. Okay. Now how do I make it simpler? Um, so, So I was hoping maybe, you know, we can begin to go through a little bit of these practices so people can also feel inspired and um, begin to think of ways in which that they can even begin the very first practice, which I think is one of the most important, which is loving the work. Yeah. And as you were as you were saying that, April, I was thinking of how much they are connected, I think, in some way, especially uh, love the work and uh, and keep making it simpler. But but I wanted, you know, it's interesting when people hear uh, the, the first practice, love the work, we're, our minds are so used to thinking that what that means is to to love the particular kind of work that you are that you are doing. And and yes, that's that, that's important. I don't I don't want to underestimate that. But I'm I'm kind of laying out a, a different way of looking at at work, which is that. Um, the real work, I think, is developing one's self-awareness and helping others. And that this is, this is the work, in, 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 my, in my view. This is what I mean by, by love the work. And that, that, if you love that if you love that work, it, it kind of changes. It maybe even transforms the nature of whatever you're doing. You know, because so many, especially... Um, so much these days, especially as the as the world of technology is changing, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, commonality in the way people spend their time. Um, that a lot of time is spent, you know, pe- people um, in meetings and writing and thinking about stuff and um, uh, inter- interacting interacting with with people, so that the uh, the work is is really this um, this sense of having having a, a, a mindfulness practice, and and love loving the work of, you know, self actualization, self uh, self 
awareness. Yeah. And I would agree too, like with that mindfulness and if we're walking in the world with more mindfulness too, what I feel, what you were just saying is it really, like you said, that becomes the work. And then whatever it is that comes after that, um, kind of gets incorporated in because I, you know, I'm kind of thinking if you can connect to yourself and also a lot of the stuff that you have in the book is also about connecting to others, you know, and that compassion with others and feeling that connection, then whatever you're doing outside of that, as long as you have that, then I think you begin to love the the work that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, in a way it's to be, to be fascinated by, what it is to be, you know, the, the, the body and mind of a human being. I mean, we're such, we're such amazing, mysterious creatures, you know, that we, we so much, um, live in the world of, of story and the stories that we tell about who we are and what we're doing and what we like and what we don't like. And, and again, it's, um, it's funny. I, one of my, um, one of my favorite, uh, quotes from the, she comes from the, the founder of uh, Zen in Japan in the 13th century, who, who says, um, you know, to study, to study the way is to study the self, and to study the self is to go beyond the self. And I think, you know, I think what he's saying is that the, 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 the role of a human being, the real role of a human being is to, is this kind of self knowledge and the more that we can become comfortable in our own skins and not be so caught by the um, various stories that we tell ourselves the more we can be free of this um, the, the sense of the again going back to what we we're saying free of the small self and more moving into a larger sense of self and then the more we can uh, connect on a, on a deeper level with the people around us yeah. And, you know, you also have um, a chapter in the book, too, about listening, you know, how to be actively listening to others and how that can really be a challenge for some people to actually do active listening and different types of listening. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, this was one of the real big um, one of the real big surprises early on when I was teaching mindfulness uh, inside of Google, you know, that we would, uh, you know, present present what mindfulness is and talk about emotional intelligence and teach people how to meditate um, and present the science of, of meditation. It was all, I thought it was all really, really interesting. And then we would, uh, as an experiment, have people get into pairs and have one person just listen to another person without interrupting just for a couple of minutes. And it was almost like, it was just like uh, people were so uh, surprised and excited to learn how rarely they actually listened. Mm-hmm. And that, and that in a way, um, I think especially in the, in the business world, people are trained that instead of really listening, you're thinking about what you're going to say and you're, it's all self, it's very self-referential and you kind of need to be, you know, smart and quick and on guard and, uh, and, and just to let that down and just to, uh, be totally present for what someone else is saying was a huge, um, a huge aha, both for the person doing the listening and the person being listened to just that experience of like, Oh, someone's really being present for me. They're really paying paying attention. And then, and then people, 
began more and more to bring that that's that different that different quality of listening into their uh, not only their teams and their and their um, work, but we would find, you know, people would report they would, um, you know, go home, and you know the, the the person that they lived with would present them with a uh, with an issue or a problem. And we we I used to joke and say this is this is a practice I particularly want to recommend for for the men in, who I'm working with. When you go home, when you go home tonight, and your partner says they you know they have an issue or, or there's a problem, you can see something's bothering them. Uh, instead of just jumping in and problem solving, say, "Would you like me just to listen, or would you like me to problem solve?" And and people would come back um, the next day saying that their um, partners almost didn't recognize them because they were that that kind of quality of care and listening was was so uh, unusual. Yeah, there's um, there's a very short YouTube clip. It might be like about 45 seconds. And I usually give this to my couples that come in for couples therapy. And it's called It's Not About the Nail. So this woman has this nail in the center of her forehead and she's like, oh, and she's talking to her husband. She's like, oh, I just have such a throbbing in my head, you know, and she's going on and complaining about the pain. And he's like, well, you, you got a nail in your forehead. And she's like, no, I'm not talking about that. It's just, you know, it's just so hard, you know, to like put my sweaters on because they're getting snagged. And he's like, again, wants to like fix it and said, well, if you just took the nail out, you know, and she basically was like, it's not about the nail. And then she goes on to explain a little bit more of her frustration. He goes, wow, that sounds really hard. And then she's like, yes, you know, and so it's exactly what you said. And a lot of my couples get a kick out of that because it's exactly what they're kind of going through with, you know, trying to communicate how they're feeling or what's going on. And, you know, sometimes what I have um, learned too, is that men also tend to be very solution focused, you know, it's like they like to help and to solve problems. Not that women don't, but, you know, women tend, I think, to maybe innately, <clears throat> I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but maybe know how to hold space a little bit longer or maybe do more of the empathetic listening of listening to a person's feelings and emotions. Whereas the men are like, okay, here's a problem. A, B, let's just try and solve it. You know, take that nail out of your head and your sweaters won't snag and you won't have a throbbing headache. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that, that's a funny little video, like what you were just talking about. And that also leads into it. I thought it was nice to see that you had some of the, the Gottman principles, um, that I also teach some of the couples that come to see me. I love his theory and it talks about the different horsemen. Yeah, these are, these are the, um, the things that, uh, get, get in the way of, um, of real, real listening. And, um, yeah, I think I name, I name, you know, th th these are, these are things that John Gottman discovered in, in couples and right. And he's, he became famous for being able to, to tell within a matter of minutes, whether couples are going to remain uh, married or not. Uh, but, but I thought it was very, um, principles that could be adapted to all relationships, you know, that, that when we're, um, we have a way of, instead of really connecting um, that as, as the defense mechanisms of criticizing and contempt and defensiveness and stonewalling. And, you know, we all, we all do this at, at times, but just to, to, uh, bring, aw bring awareness that, uh, you know, I think this is in the, uh, the chapter on, 
uh, connect to the to the pain of others. The kind of developing the importance of developing uh, empathy as a as a leader. You know, there's there's really interesting um, data on how the the more people rise um, in terms of responsibility, generally there's a, there's a pattern of a kind of less empathy, less caring and concern for others, and it's just kind of an I think a, a natural response that people have to getting getting more more power, and also I think with more responsibility, leaders' focus becomes on you know, on, on on meeting certain goals and looking at, at, at how how the leader is going to be um, evaluated, and it can. So it's interesting just to notice to notice that pattern and to find find ways to stay to stay really um, uh, connected to the people we're working with. Yeah, and you know, for our listeners, I would you know recommend if you've never heard of the work of um, Gottman to take a look at that. And um, it's a really great reference. Just, you know, when I came across his work, not even just in, um, you know, marriage, but like you said, just the way in which we communicate with others and noticing our sarcasm when we have it sometimes or what would be considered a harsh startup, you know, or we may think we're funny, but what that can lead to and how that can make others feel. So I found his work really um, just really interesting, too outside of couples therapy, um, to help. But, um, the other thing that I really liked in your book and I have it bookmarked, it's in the chapter of doing the work and it's about, um, how to avoid reactivity. And I really liked how you, you just broke it down. So simple in talking about our fight, flight and freeze response and how we're always kind of in that, um, state and how do we begin to train ourselves through that? And I highlighted this one line that you had in here. It says the nervous ape survives by overreacting to all potential threats and living to laugh about it. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love that because, you know, so many times I've had people come in to talk to me and, you know, they're just kind of talking about their anxiety and their mind and it won't turn off. And they're just perceiving threat, even when there is no threat all the time. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, you know, go through about what this reactivity is about and how our mind is really helping to protect us. But then how do we begin to cultivate that emotional intelligence and awareness around some of these reactions that we have and helping ourselves to control those reactions uh, with others? So I was wondering if you'd like to talk about that. And you also gave a good example about this um, and your mom when you came home and you had to take her to a doctor's appointment. So. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> No, I, I think of my um, my Google scientist friend who was very fond of saying that we are descendants of the nervous apes. Yeah. Uh, right, the, the the apes are 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 descendants that were chill and not worried about things. They all got killed, and and that um, I, I've become a student of you know evolutionary biology, and I think it's really fascinating to just to to get more of a sense of the. You know that that we as humans, over over you know hundreds of thousands, maybe you know millions of years, we've evolved to be to be scanning for threats, and that and that this is you know because the from an evolutionary point of view, what matters most is uh, staying alive and, right. and and passing on our genes to the next generation. So just knowing that it's a way to kind of give ourselves a, a bit a bit of a break. Uh, but being aware how it's just in us to be scanning for threats externally, but also I, I I think this is also why 
we all seem to have this really strong kind of inner critic that this is the inner scan scanning for what could go wrong or what's not working. Um, that, but, and to see that these are um, mechanisms that essentially just want, want to keep us safe and that, um, we can through these, some of these practices find antidotes to not being quite so tossed around by the, by the nervous ape. Yeah. And another um, thing that I highlighted that I think our listeners would like to, um, you had said uh, one guideline for an appropriate response is to ask what response is most likely to have the best possible outcome for all involved? Yeah. Just asking. It's just such a great, it's just such a great question. I mean, it's in a way, it's such a um, big mind question. It's a way to shift from what we were talking about earlier from, from small mind to big mind, because small mind is all about me small mind is usually about, you know, what can go wrong or what can serve me and just to open it up and, you know, what, what, what's, what's the best response for this, this situation. And it can uh, free us from uh, our kind of reactive, narrow stories. Right. And, you know, I remember the, you know, the example that you gave was, um, or one of the examples that you had given, you were coming home for lunch and you, you had an appointment that you had to take your mom to who was ill and not feeling very well. And, you know, you came in to find her. Well, you, it sounded like you were expecting her to be ready, ready to go to the doctor. And you had found that she was just starting to get out of her pajamas. And, you know, there was the part probably of that, that small mind within yourself, the anxious mind, like, come on, I got to get back to work. I'm on a time frame here, things to do list, you know, like, come on, mom, let's go. And, um, but then you kind of stopped for a moment and you, you really dropped into, you know, be compassionate about her realizing that she was in pain and your whole just attitude and everything shifted, really making it less about you, more about her and serving her in this moment and helping her to get dressed and then clearing your whole schedule just so you could give that time to what was going on in that present moment and kind of letting all that other stuff go, which to me is, it's a great example of what you're teaching in this book too, of that mindfulness and that connection and being mindful in these moments. Yeah. And again, I think it was a very, um, poignant and real world example at the time I was the CEO of a growing publishing company. And I was, I was, I, I was just thinking back to what was happening during that time was, you know, there were real people pressures and financial pressures and, and, and I was taking care of my mother and I came, you know, and we had, you know, we had agreed, you know, I, I had a small window and, and she, she was going to be all ready to, for me to take her to the doctor. And, um, I, I had to, I had to let go of my, my own story that I was telling and realize that, um, you know, my mother was, was in real need here and was pretty, pretty ill. And that, um, I, I, I could, I could, and in a way, I, this also, um, dovetails beautifully into the, you know, the practice of depend on others that, that I was able to make a call to the people who, who were working for me and said, um, I need some help. Uh, could you guys cover for me on these, these next couple of meetings that are happening? I'm not going to be able to be there. I need to take care of my mother. Um, so this was kind of both letting go of my story, dropping in, seeing, uh, feeling, you know, being connected to my, to my mother's pain and, and, uh, being with her in a way that was really needed and taking an action to have some other people help me out. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to thank you for that um, example, because it was great. And it was, you know, I could see myself in that situation at one point when I was taking care of my grandmother and feeling the same thing and not nearly as mindful as I am today and probably chose the wrong response and the wrong reaction at like, you know, 18 years old. And, you know, cause in that, that regard, it's all about me, 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 come on, I got to get to my friends. Like, you know, yeah. but I was her caretaker for a while as well. But, um, yeah, but thank you. Thank you for that story. It was touching. Um, and you know, you also gave another good example that I'd like more towards the end of the book. Um, and this might be moving a little bit more into what meditation actually achieves and maybe, maybe meditation overall, you gave a fun story about how you were co-teaching, uh, with another teacher and how he was using the example that meditation is very much like going to the gym and working out the muscle and strengthening the muscle. And you kind of said, well, yes, that's true, but I also disagree. And it's a part of this. So I was wondering if you can um, talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, no, that was, uh, we, we, he and I were actually, uh, teaching a group of Google doctors and healthcare workers. And, and it was, he was at the time, you know, one of the slides in the uh, program that we were leading said, you know, meditation is like going to the gym and that in a way you're building the muscle of being able to bring your attention, you know, back to the breath, back, back to the body that you're kind of building a kind of focus. And I, I stepped up right after that. And, and I said, and I want to, you know, that, yes, I agree with that. And meditation is nothing like going to the gym, um, that, that it's also important to totally let go of any idea of, of, um, gain, gain or, or that you're kind of building something and that, 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 that both, both views about meditation are true that, that on the one hand, on the one hand, of course, uh, it is it is important to have some um, intention, and that we 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 do begin a meditation practice because we want some some outcomes. We might want, you know, to to be, you know, have a have some tools to dealing with stress. We we want to have better relationships. We want to be healthier. We know that meditation is is good for the heart, um, but there's also from I, I have from my perspective, and and I think. Um, my own experience is that the real, you know, the, the real value, and it's a bit, it's a bit paradoxical. There's, there's tremendous value in then when you're actually doing the practice to completely let go of wanting to get, wanting to get anything and, and a kind of radical, a radical acceptance of who you are and, and what is without trying to change anything is, is a way is a way I think where the, the real, um, the real value of the practice is kind of cultivating a kind of, um, in a way it's like cultivating big mind. It's cultivating the, the, the aspirational mind of, um, of acceptance and curiosity and, and kindness, um, very different than the mind that wants to get something. Yes. And there's actually, you also give practices in the book too, that our listeners should know that as well. Um, you know, you give examples and different things that we can try to practice and do. And, um, you know, I'm looking at now the chapter of keep making it simpler, right? Okay. So my word for 2019 is simple. So I'm excited to talk about this chapter <laughs> of how we can, um, keep it simpler. And there was a part of in here, um, of the key practices and 
one provided me a little bit of anxiety. It said, explore letting go of your to-do list, plans and projects just for a few minutes each day. And what I found was also interesting in this, which reminds me another part of what I read that it's, um, you had in here that it's almost like we kind of put pressures on ourselves to be so productive because we're almost afraid that if we do relax, that we're going to be less productive if we're calmer and taking care of ourselves or maybe really like letting go of these things to do list, it almost feels like, Oh my gosh, well, you know, if I do that, then I'm not going to be successful. I'm not going to be productive. Wherein when people are actually taking your suggestions and doing just that, that the productivity level is actually increasing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is, this is a little bit like the, the, the practice, or sometimes it feels like a paradox of effort and effortlessness, or, or even, you know, you're also getting into the territory of, I think we, we have a, uh, many, many people have this really deep seated belief that we need to be hard on ourselves, right? That we need to be hard on ourselves and, and make great effort, or we're going to be lazy and nothing's, nothing's going to get done. You know, I, I often suggest when I'm, when I'm doing coaching with uh, business executives that they just, as an experiment, try being kinder to yourself and not beat yourself up and see if you're less productive. And of course, you know, almost everyone finds that you're actually more, more productive with that, with that kindness than that than the whip, the whip that we have um, for ourselves. Right. And go figure, you know, it's like if we are running a company and we're not kind to our employees, they're, they're not going to want to work for us, you know, so why aren't we that kind to ourselves? You know, if you're kind to your employees, they will want to work for you. They'll want to do really well for you because you are showing kindness towards them. But yet we are like, you we're talking about earlier, that inner critic, we are so, so tough on ourselves. Yeah. Uh, the inner critic and just the, um, it can become, it can become the, the, the norm to, um, the sense of, uh, busyness, even, even to the point, you know, I, I, I see in a lot of business cultures where, uh, you, even if, if the people have, have to appear busy, people, you know, um, there's that, that story I tell in the book of, of coming onto a, a Skype call. Uh, with a uh, an executive from another company, and the and the woman immediately says to me, "Are you as busy as we are?" And and I could see, you know, it was like this badge of honor that of being busy. And and I, I, you know, I kind of gulped and I thought, "How am I going to respond to this?" And I said, "You know, actually, we don't do busy here. Uh, we we really aim to be uh, focused, engaged, and and spacious." And as I said that, I I could see her and the and her partner who was on the call writing down these words. And I thought, Oh, this is a good sign. This is going over. Okay. And, and we actually had a conversation about, you know, she was very curious um, what I meant by the practice of spaciousness. And, and, and I think, um, again, just to see that, uh, that often we do feel pressure, often we do feel stress and that to notice that, and then to actually just, even even just looking around at the space that's in in the room, you know that that to, to physically see and feel a sense of um, spaciousness can be a can be a really a powerful practice. Yes. Well, 
Mark, I really enjoyed this book. Um, again, for our listeners, it's Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. And um, I'd like you to let our listeners know, too, where they can find you. And people can find me at marklesser.net, M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R.net. Great. And just one last um, thing maybe to leave our listeners with, which would be, you know, if, if somebody were to pick up this book, The Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, what are you hoping that they, what's, what are you hoping their takeaway is um, from this? If there's nothing else that after they read your book, this is what they get from it. Well, two quotes pop into my mind that I, maybe I'll, I'll share. One is a uh, a quote by uh, Wendell Berry, who is a fifth-generation Kentucky farmer and writer, and he said, uh, "Be joyful, though you've considered all the facts. Be joyful, though you've considered all the facts." That's one of the things I want people to 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 know. And the other is part of a poem, a few lines from a poem by the poet uh, Tony Hoagland, who said, uh, "Remember that time and light." are kinds of love. And love is no less unusual than a coffee grinder or a safe spare tire. So I think, um, so the two things are about um, see, see clearly and find joy, even, even in the midst of this, um, this really difficult mixed up world that we're in. And let yourself feel the love that is in all of us that's at the bottom of, of leadership and relationship and, and um, deep, deep within our, our bodies, minds, and hearts to, to connect with that sense of deep love. Beautifully said. And what a perfect ending to our conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Mark. You. Thank you, April. Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day, four day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back, uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people. Uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are 
just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today.